Hello, I'm Philip Brain. And I'm Harry Clennon. And you're listening to Bird's Eye by Spectacles. Welcome. If this is your first time listening to Spectacles, or Bird's Eye in particular, take a listen to the show trailer here in your podcast app, on YouTube, or on our website at spectacles.news. To learn more about what Spectacles is, what we believe, and what you can expect from this show and our other shows, Insight and Focus. In my student days, in a poor village in southern Italy, I came upon a remarkable statement by a village monarchist. He said, Monarchy is the best kind of government, because the king is then owner of the country. Like the owner of a house, when the wiring is wrong, he fixes it. The villagers' argument jarred against my democratic convictions. I could not deny that the owner of a country would have an incentive to make his property productive. Could the germ of truth in the monarchist's argument be reconciled with the case for democracy? Today, uh, we're going to be starting a new series in Bird's Eye on the question of whether or not dictatorship works. And we're going to be asking some, some key questions which sort of undergird that inquiry. For example... Why has most of human civilization been a story of kings, queens, oligarchs, and warlords, and not a story of democracy? We're also going to ask, can dictatorships be economically successful? Right, and how does the structure of a government shape that economic development? And how do societies transform from dictatorship to democracy? And finally, and I think perhaps really relevant to what's going on now around the world and democracies, can a democracy fully expunge all tendencies toward dictatorship? Right. And that's, of course, relevant because there's a perception in America, especially today, that this country has not totally removed all of its sort of ghosts of dictatorship um, and all of its anti-democratic characteristics. Yeah. And I mean, I think partially perhaps as a product of that, or maybe also developing somewhat independently, right? We see that there is a growing authoritarian trend in the United States and perhaps all modern liberal democracies or many modern liberal democracies. More people are consciously or unconsciously asking the question posed by the Italian villager. Right. So we're going to begin today with that question or with that argument offered by the Italian villager. And it's explored in an article called Dictatorship, Democracy, and Development. It's by a political scientist, Munker Olson. And it actually begins with that anecdote about the Italian village. That's where we drew, that's where we got the quote from. So a note about this article, it's, it's an academic article. It's sort of a piece of political science research almost. And that means that not many people read it. But Harry and I think that it's a really useful and interesting article for anyone to understand. We're trying to make it accessible to any of you who are listening to this or watching this to make this sort of article and this research accessible, which normally you wouldn't otherwise come across. If you've ever watched one of those YouTube videos or listened to a podcast where they, you know, explain the theory of relativity or something like that, you know, these sort of abstract academic concepts, make them break them down and present them to you. Well, that's what this is. But well, dictatorship rather than gravity. Right. 
and it can be explained perfectly scientifically. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I'm excited. I, I read this piece and actually I think my, my last class session ever of college. Um, I, I wish I'd read it earlier than that, but I was glad to have done it. I think it's a, a nice little piece. It has its flaws and we're going to go through some of those critiques towards the end of the episode, but I'm, I'm excited to talk about it. And in future episodes, we're going to be talking about sort of the limitations of dictatorship. For example, in Portugal under Salazar in the second half of the 20th century. And also so we're going to ask, you know, how is the continued existence of American democracy challenged by conditions favorable to dictatorship, right? So that very last key question that we asked, and I think that that's a really important one. Yeah, and you really want to stay tuned for those two episodes because the story of Salazar in Portugal from the 30s to the 60s, it's a really interesting story that not a lot of people know uh, about dictatorship in the country. And it's an it's one an interesting history lesson and two very interesting to explore sort of on this topic and then of course the exploration of of america and our sort of challenges is i think obviously important for for democracy for those of us who care about preserving it or care about understanding it better and understanding its challenges so we can approach them better so with that said we'll go ahead and begin yeah. So the first topic we have, the first section in, in Olson's article begins with the question of human social organization. And we start with this sort of generally uncontroversial assumption, right, that humans prefer to live most of their lives, you know, in peaceful order, they where they aren't threatened by violent death. You can think Thomas Hobbes for that, talk about absolutism and dictatorship. But we start sort of with that, that, that question of, of human social order. And also the idea uh, of maybe like the idea of social contracts or voluntary consensus, which brings together society to organize voluntarily. And Olson argues that small societies can and do, talking like hunter-gatherer, band-level societies can organize and bring peaceful order voluntarily, right, through consensus with each other. Right. And there's a nice quote that I think from the piece helps explain that if you wanted to read. That yeah, yeah, he's got this quote. He says, in a tiny group such as a hunter-gatherer band, each person or family will obtain a significant share of the benefits of a peaceful order. And the net advantages of such a peaceful order are so great that even a single family's share of the gains can easily outweigh the sacrifices needed to obtain it. Moreover, when there are only a few, the welfare of each noticeably depends on whether each of the others acts in a group-oriented way. Yeah. And I think that helps illustrate, right, the basic idea that cooperation in small groups sort of produces these salient benefits, right? You can really see that what you put in, you will get out, contribute to helping with hunting or gathering, and you really see the benefits when they're distributed, you know, usually equally right. among the group. And the group is small enough to see, for example, if someone is slacking and they can be socially sanctioned or even driven out. Right. You can't, you, you can't not contribute to the group or you can't behave aggressively within the group or provocatively because you know, the consequences of that are going to be felt by everyone pretty directly. Right. And you're going to see, you're going to see consequences from that behavior. Right. Pretty directly. And that's called what we'd think of actually in, a, in a, another piece, a more famous piece by Olson called the, the logic of collective action. He expounds this theory of rational choice, right? That it is rational in a small group setting for everyone to participate and cooperate to develop, you know, increases in, in gains and resources that you can distribute and stuff right. like that. Right? right. And that there's no incentive to free ride, right? To not participate because you actually won't be able to reap the gains that way because everyone will know you're not getting 
serving the stew right. at dinner yeah. time if you yeah. didn't, if you well, didn't or it's simply the fact that if you also if you don't do it for example if you know three guys go out to hunt like a woolly mammoth or something and one guy doesn't participate the two you other guys can, everyone knows you got to have four four guys four guys woolly mammoth. Four everyone guy knows job. that everyone knows that i didn't know that until now anyone well, anyway you know that is sort of the, the that is an important aspect of the of the logic that's going to underlie this paper so keep that in mind as, as we as we go through it I and mean, it actually gets to sort of one of olson's what i would argue is two underlying assumptions and we'll get to the other one later but the first one is that humans act rationally right they respond to incentives yep. and they pursue their interests in the way that they see is the most profitable to them and that's a very baseline definition of rationality i'm not going to get into all kinds of you know debates about it but as a, as a, as a workable definition i think that right. that serves this is a key assumption for the arguments that he makes throughout right. the paper that this is how people behave so that said small communities have this sort of dynamic which allows for consensus sort of style of, of leadership and decision making because it's a small group and you know all these things large societies don't really have this luxury uh olson has a good quote sort of explaining it exactly in the terms that, you know, we explain the, the small groups, he says, quote, the main reason is that the typical individual in a society with, say, a million people will only get about one millionth of the gain from a collective good, but will bear the whole cost of whatever he or she does to help provide it, and therefore has little or no incentive to contribute to the provision of of the collective good, right? You know, the benefits that are going to come to you from contributing get increasingly small as they're distributed across a lot of people. Right. And yet you still have to put in a lot of work, essentially. So the incentives to not contribute and just try to free ride, you know, eat the mammoth meat that comes home right. and not help in hunting it, you know, that starts to happen more and more. Right. The idea being that it's not possible through voluntarism or through mere consensus for a million people to sit down and say okay here's we're going to be a society now that is not how it works we're all just going to help we're all just going to help each other out and it's going to work not borne out by history and i think that's important right the more it just becomes more difficult to organize and coordinate simply through consensus and just sitting down voluntarily you know you know a society does not just functioning societies not simply spring out of of those kinds of conditions and and so among these kinds of free riders as we'll call them you'll see bandits Right? right, and this is this is sort of the this is sort of the basis of Olson's. Olson is really exploring. It's often referred to as the stationary bandit theory. So he's he says, boom, it's on the board. It's <laughs> on the board. So we've got roving bandits, basically marauders who go around, and in large civilizations, you can sort of start to do this. Right, you get get a gang of people. If any of you have played Red Dead Redemption, that's what it's about. <laughs> or say you happen upon us, even a small settled farming community that is, you know, relatively egalitarian or not secure, and they can just happen upon it, and they and their, you know, lackeys or whatever could, you know, pillage the place and right. take away take away all the the you know, agricultural surplus or right. whatever. And so he uses a historical example. Yeah, right. He talks about, Olson talks about the history of China in the 1920s. He says, in the 1920s, China was in large part under the control of various warlords. And this this hammers home the point that this is not just, you know, way olden times or something like that. Right. It's a, it's a theme of human history throughout all time since we including sort of settled today. down, yeah. including today in many parts of the world. Right. And that's important, right. but go ahead. Yeah. 
So in the 1920s, China was in large part under the control of various warlords. They were men who led some armed band with which they conquered some territory and who then appointed themselves lords of that territory. They taxed the population heavily and pocketed much of the proceeds. The warlord Feng Yusheng was noted for the exceptional extent to which he used his army for suppressing bandits and for his defeat of this relatively substantial army of the roving bandit White Wolf. Apparently, most people in Feng's domain found him much preferable to the roving bandits. So in that sense, the stationary bandit Feng is an armed individual or group who conquers an area and then establishes a monopoly on violence or a dictatorship. Basically, who what once might have been, this is what happened with the Vikings, exactly the same thing. You go around, you raid, but then you start to sort of acquire territory, you settle down, and mm-hmm. then now you, you have a monopoly on violence because you don't want, now that you control this territory, you don't want other roving bandits coming right. into your territory and pillaging your subjects. Right. Right. You don't want your subjects fighting among each other either. Right. Right. And, but it's an, it's, it's this sort of interesting question. Why would this stationary bandit be preferable who steals from these people in taxes be preferable to the roving bandit who steals from these people in raids? Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, that's, that's right. That's the puzzle it also poses. Why is, is Fung preferable to the white wolf? And the answer, right, is he's because he provides public peace and he can extract a reliable amount of resources right. through taxes on a, maybe a more regular basis right. rather than simply pillaging, right? I mean, if you are, again, say a peaceful agricultural community and you are, you know, you know, at, at unknown times, a bunch of raiders are going to come in and steal your stuff. You might prefer some guy who comes in and says, okay, I'm in charge now. No one's going to steal this. And then, you Except know, me, but I'm going to do it, right. you know, regularly. And I'm not going to kill take a third of your grain. Yeah. And I'm not going to take your wife and I'm not going to burn your fields or anything like this. I'm just going to take a certain amount. I'm going to do it regularly and nobody else is going to mess with you. Right. And, you know, that's appealing. And it's really important to understand the underlying theories of human behavior at work here. Uh, I mean, here, you had something about this. Yeah, I think. yeah, yeah. It's just this sort of right. You see this going back to the discussion of small groups versus large groups, right? The difficulties of coordination across large groups, right? Sort of make the ordering of society by violence and coercion, if not necessary, then sometimes, I mean, I think arguably in, in previous times necessary, but perhaps sometimes beneficial. And that's right. not a comfortable thing necessarily for us to think about, but it is true that, you know, most of the the institutions which we over a long period of time and i'm talking global history here were inherited the institutions that we inherited were at some point um either very recently or thousands of years ago structured by violent interaction and right. coercion right right that sort of gets to the question we set out in that section why dictatorship right. well Once because the stationary it, bandit has it, settled down it has some dictatorship. Ad- yeah, it has some advantages over lawlessness, essentially, mm-hmm. which is what you're bound to get in a large group of people because there are going to be these free riders who take advantage of the lack of organization. Right. So there, there are benefits to dictatorship in that sort of situation. Well, then it leads to the question: Okay, well, clearly there's there's some necessity for some kind of order, right? But does dictatorship actually work? Can it generate? economic growth or is it just sort of it it just sort of keeps people from dying and being robbed and that's about all it can do Mm. right and this is the interesting question posed by olson will the guy repair the wiring will he improve the house will he renovate it if he owns it right and so we can start with what we've already discussed the dictator or the stationary bandit provides public order 
and he allows the population to save and invest some of their earnings to, to some extent because they know they're going to have to pay this much in taxes. And they, they if, if the stationary bandit is good at his job of providing public order, they know this other stuff that I don't pay in taxes, I will get to keep and nobody's going to take from me. Right. So I can invest in sort of longer term projects and things like this that might improve my earning potential over the long term. I might build a new barn that can house more animals, blah, blah, blah. Right. And in that sense, the stationary bandit actually has an incentive to encourage the growth of productive economic activity within his domain, right. because he can actually increase what Olson calls the tax receipts, or just the amount of resources that he extracts in taxes every year, if the economy grows, right? If, if right. the overall production of some say, small agricultural village, grows from year one to year two to year three, his one-third of taxes, say, that he's extracting actually is going to grow with it every year. So he has an incentive to encourage that growth. And part of what he might do is provide public goods, right? Like think about roads, for example, or bridges across a river to improve trade between two towns or something like that. He actually has an incentive to provide those things, which increase his the resources that he extracts, but also in doing so, he has to increase the economic productivity of right. the area over which he resides, right. which he rules over. The, the more money or the more productive your subjects make or are, the more you're going to collect in taxes. Right. 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 Very simple. Right. So there is an incentive to, to make your people more productive, not just to take everything they've got each year. Yeah. And that also points to the second key assumption that I see is sort of underlying Olson's analysis, which is that humans are self-interested and primar primarily motivated by the prospect of material gain, right? So that helps to explain a lot of human behavior, right? If you take a materialist analysis, um, I mean, this is not a Marxist analysis. You could take a Marxist materialist analysis, but this is a materialist analysis which suggests that the humans, humans desire to increase their material gains year over year or generation over generation or whatever is primarily what drives human behavior, both the stationary bandit and his subjects. And so the relationship is kind of mutually beneficial. And so we see that rationality, this first assumption that, you know, actors are going to choose between the better of the two options that they perceive. And the second assumption, materialism, help explain human behavior and how political communities develop. And it's important to keep those underlying assumptions in mind, in part because it helps to understand the theory, but also as we get to a section on critiques, we'll maybe talk about some problems with that. Yeah. So there are these incentives, conditions that facilitate the, the dictator promoting economic growth. So, you know, maybe maybe the the guy in the Italian village is right. Who was Chris Pratt? Who was Chris Pratt? Chris Chris Pratt was oh, the Italian yeah, villager. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> I'm an idiot. Yes, Chris Pratt, the Italian villager. Oh, goodness. Anyways, maybe this guy is right. Maybe Chris Pratt is right that to some extent uh, the stationary bandit or the dictator is going to want to see his his holdings improve and develop. Well, it turns out that he's only right to an extent. For one, the stationary bandit's incentive is to maximize his personal gains and extract more resources for himself than would be optimal for really high economic growth. Right. Say. So like year over year, the stationary bandit wants a good amount of wealth to enrich himself. This is according to Olson's theory, right? He wants a good amount of growth to enrich himself. And so he will actually, you know, push taxes to the highest possible level to to continue generating his year-over-year -year returns. Essentially, basically. until 
or right before the point that it starts generating negative growth. Yes, let's say. Exactly. Basically right to the brink. Right. Because you want to get as much money as you can without making less money next year. Right. Exactly. And I think we both have discussed when we were prepping for this episode some issues that we might have with that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we'll get to those at the end. But for now, think about it like that. And it, and it makes sense, right? It makes sense that uh, even though he will promote economic growth, he will promote economic growth only insofar as it serves his particular interest. Olson talks right. about the extent right. to which interests are right. encompassing. And his interests encompass only himself his his returns right i mean they right. encompass the society to the extent that they can increase his returns but really it's all directed towards right. him right. so that's important there's there's also a factor of instability right a dictator a king a queen whatever have you doesn't live forever and he's not sure that he won't get assassinated or when his reign might end and so there's an additional incentive to extract as much as possible very quickly, right? right? Because you don't know how long you're going to be in this position. Maybe in three years, a new roving bandit band comes along stronger than, for Feng, say, stronger than the white wolf roving right. bandit band, and you flee. You flee north to some other region, right? right. You want to you wanna know that you're getting as much as you can right now out of this situation as possible. Now, the argument is... Well, dynasties fix this. They, by having heirs and a sort of concern for the future and concern for your heirs and a reliability of who's going to succeed you, that this allows for a degree of security and predictability, and it also generates a concern for your heirs that might induce longer-term thinking that is going to get you different behavior from the dictator than let me get out as much as I possibly can as quickly as I can, right? I need to set up something sustainable and something that is also going to allow my son or whatever in the future to continue being in charge here and extracting taxes without either incurring hatred or seeing negative growth, which is going to impact his ability to sustain the wealth. Right, but that doesn't fully fix uh, the problem. No. Olson says a, a, a nice line. He says, there's a near zero probability that the son of a king is the most talented person for the job. Right. The idea is that, you know, you have this succession problem, right? The guy who follows the other guy might might not be good. And so, of course, you see all the time these in, in, in right. like, for example, medieval Europe, you know, succession crisis after succession crisis after succession crisis. And even when you don't have a succession crisis, you've got a crisis of the fact that the dude that ended up succeeding is terrible. Right, right. So either the, <laughs> either the barons don't have confidence in him, so they're going to try and overthrow him, right. or he stays on the throne, but he's just not good enough at the job, and so things sort of fall apart, right? It's a um, horribly unreliable system. It's not a very reliable system. And so that's, that's another problem. And then on top of this, though, um, certain conditions are... Uh, necessary for the kinds of economic activity which generate the high levels of growth and prosperity that I suppose we would all like to see, right? Contracts, secure property, property rights. But in a dictatorship, especially in this very simplified model that Oslin has of a single stationary bandit and a sort of homogeneous population, there are no independent sources of power. Right. People can't trust that their property is going to be respected. They can't, and they won't be confident then in making long-term investments, right? You're not going to invest in another project it could take some you know 10 years to fully pan out right. if you aren't confident that in five years the whole thing isn't going to go isn't going to collapse and, and in a lot of ways those long-term investments do are a huge element of the promotion of economic and, and growth, not basically. only not only collapse say the dictator is incredibly secure in his position and very strong and you know there's no risk of the regime collapsing right 
if he's very strong, then that only lends to the fact that he has a very high level of discretion over changing his tax policies and maybe taking more next year than he did before. And what are you going to do about it? He's in a very strong position. doesn't matter. So Olson has a good quote that sort of sums up this problem about the unreliability of economic rights and property security. He says, the rational autocrat will have an incentive because of his interest in increasing the investment and trade of his subjects you know, that's going to jack up the income, that means more taxes, to promise that he will never confiscate wealth or repudiate assets. But the promise of an autocrat is not enforceable by an independent judiciary or any other independent source of power. Because autocratic power, by definition, implies that there cannot be any judges or other sources of power in the society that the autocrat cannot overrule. In In a phrase, his promises aren't credible. Right. And that's important. I think Olson kind of loosens up on the rationality side of things here, because if everyone understood rationally, we benefit to some extent from this arrangement, he's not going to take stuff from us, then, you know, it wouldn't happen. But people can't, that level of trust isn't there. And the dictator might not be rational. He might not take, you know, the exact optimal amount for himself, which promotes some economic growth or whatever. He might decide one day he likes, you know, this guy's, you know, merchant stall. And he says, oh, everything there is mine. If he's a dictator, he can do that. And no one can fully trust how that works. So that leads us to the question of, you know, these seem like some pretty big problems. How does democracy solve them? And the nice thing that Olson points out, which I think sort of ties it up neatly, um, is that the institutions which enforce political democracy, right? So an independent judiciary, as he says, checks and balances, also ensure, right, that economic growth is possible. These are the kinds of things that are going to guarantee those property rights that make investment and long-term economic maneuvers more feasible and reliable. And he has Again, another great quote. He says, individual rights, this is, this is just a great historical example or proof of his argument. He says, individual rights to property and contract enforcement were probably more secure in Britain after 1689 than anywhere else. And it was in Britain not very long after the glorious revolution that took place in 1689 that the industrial revolution began. Yeah. And so these things are deeply intertwined. Right. And you see that, you know, democracies also have a tendency to provide public goods is like a stationary bandit. And they also might provide more generous goods, which could be beneficial for economic growth. I don't know, health care or cash benefits or something like that, because they're accountable to citizen voters, right? right. Who, have, who have their own interests. If you take this rational self-interest as being, you know, so those, those, you know, Olson doesn't talk specifically specifically about what kinds of public goods are, are offered, but you see that maybe democracies would offer a somewhat different kind. Right. And people have resource, right, to trusted institutions, right, to courts or something like that to resolve disputes. And importantly, limitations are placed on sort of the intervening power of the state, which means that politicians can't just extract massive amounts of wealth in society for themselves. In a, in a, in a consolidated democracy, politicians do not have the capacity to do that. And in that way, you know, right, so I, that I think leads actually to, for me to point out that we think back to our previous bird's eye on, on our first, I think our very first episode on democratic theory and the ways in which democracy and liberalism support each other, right, that the decentralization of uh, a centralized state with the decentralization of resource power, which what democracy is liberal democracy is is conducive right those things actually are 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 mutually reinforcing when they're working at their best when they're in the proper balance right so then that leads to the question well okay sounds great democracy solves these problems promotes much higher growth much more secure property rights more accountable government blah 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 well how do we get there from dictatorship because as we said history of humankind is mostly a history of dictatorship and autocrats. 
So how do we get there? Well, Olson contends that when a society reaches a state in which no individual has enough power to consolidate his or her position as a stationary bandit, as an autocrat, as a dictator, democracy can emerge. Now, that doesn't mean democracy will emerge, but it can. And he has a good quote about this. Yeah, he says, the key to an explanation of the spontaneous emergence of democracy is the absence of the commonplace conditions that generate autocracy. And I I think that's really important, is he says essentially that autocracy is by and large the default, but that when you are when you lose the conditions that are conducive to autocracy, then there's an opening for mm-hmm. democracy. But that's right. rare, essentially. Right. right. And I think that sums up sort of the arc of Olson's argument, right? That we go from why is it hard for large groups to organize? How does a stationary bandit help, for example, in organizing? What benefits might the stationary bandit actually provide? What problems arise from that? And how democracy at its best can resolve those problems. As much as we enjoyed this piece, I think we had some critiques of it. And I'm, I'm lifting one here from implicitly from other works by people like Douglas North or Darren Asimoglu and James Robinson, and also the professor whose class I was taking when I read this. But the problem is that Olson assumes a singular monolithic stationary bandit or a, or a unified group that constitutes the monolithic, the stationary bandit with, with the same interests. In reality, non-democratic societies are and have been ruled um, by someone who has some accountability to a select group of elites or by that group of elites themselves. Um, And those elites have differing interests. And so they need to uh, negotiate among themselves to preserve their status. The stationary bandit will need to, you know, for example, his his generals or his barons, he'll need to distribute beneficial kickbacks to them in the form of corruption. He might give them a monopoly on some good or something like that. in order to protect himself. So he's not just trying to extract wealth for himself. It's not just to put it in his own coffers. It's actually he uses resource. Resources are a currency of power. And right. he's going to need to distribute them in ways that protect him um, from those who might try and launch a conspiracy against him or something like that. Uh, and that actually helps to explain, I think, better than Olson does, why economic growth is not efficient under a single stationary bandit. Because the single stationary bandit if you assume his rationality, actually would have the incentive probably to take, if he has a perfectly long view of what's going to happen, maybe say even theorize that he's immortal or just that he's going to be in power for a very long time, he actually might be willing to sacrifice economic growth some years in order to increase the national income so he can extract more taxes in the long run. Philip raised this point, which right. I think is really important. Right. But, but, he, but he can't do that because he has to pay off these other he people. He has to pay off other people or he might, and he might have to give them a monopoly, which is not an efficient economic policy. Right. Um, it doesn't lead to economic growth. Right. So it, it actually turns out his incentives are not solely about bringing wealth into his own pockets. It's actually about maintaining his own power because someone might, you know, you know stab him in the back at some point so but they want but you know people want to know and, that he's got it so. and on that subject it's not just about wealth this is another sort of problem that i think we both sort of agreed about with olson's argument is he assumes this ma- materialist motivation right. for the motivation of actors you know th- he acknowledges that it isn't the sole factor but he really does rely on it for his analysis I mean, he even notes that Stationary bandits will try to justify their rule with stories of divine right or virtuous origins or things like this. And that just points to the fact that these explanations are not any explanation of politics as simply material is is not going to cut it. Now, they can be useful just like this is, but it's not comprehensive, essentially. Or at least they're contestable, I think. They're contestable. Yeah. yeah. And I think that 
if you if you want more on that subject of you know the about stories of divine right and the origins of political communities and the appeal to myth in politics you should listen to our four-part series on right. myth and politics from bird's eye we'll link it in the yeah. show notes and the stationary bandit right needs to legitimate his rule in right. some way and so if it was purely material you would just expect him to say actually i'm the stationary bandit and i want to get all the stuff from you but he doesn't say that and so you have to have some answer for why that isn't said and olsen doesn't provide an account of that and he's conscious of the fact that he's not providing an account of that but right. i do think that as you sort of try and peek under the hood of various cases right this is a, a relatively simple explanatory theory which is i think incredibly useful which is why we're talking about it but i also think that if you start to peek under the hood of individual cases you're also going to need to sort of understand what is the motivation what is the ideology of right. these people who assume some kind of totalitarian rule or some type right. of non-democratic rule, or what is the origin of democracy in, in ideology right what, what do we see there in terms of right. beliefs in some sort of a democratic system for moral or normative reasons and i think that you know we're starting with so just to close out and sort of summarize what we talked about first off the italian man is wrong kind of kind of but mostly but mostly. Yeah. And about our main questions that we went through, why has most of human civilization but a story of kings, queens, oligarchs, and warlords, not democracy? The simple answer is that big societies need direction. And the simplest form is having the guy who can kill the most people the best tell people what to do. Right. And the question of whether or not dictatorships can be economically successful, as I said, the Italian man is right kind of right yes to an extent you know you can generate some kind of economic growth but narratives that that's that dictatorship will be more successful necessarily than democracy because they have this organizational edge or, or whatever solely or not exclusively correct and in fact i'd say generally wrong one counterpoint would be for example the rise of china and its economy you know it's it continues to grow situations with real estate mega firms aside our property developers aside um we do have a, this is sort of an open question, right? Does Olson's theory, will it bear out in this case? And I think there's actually been some interesting research done on, you know, why might China be an exception to this rule or why not, why it might be an exception to the theory, but we can maybe get into that in a later episode. And then the other, another question, how does the structure of a government shape economic development? Well, as we've seen here, where power lies, either in a dictator or in a majority of the people, is going to affect the economic policies and behaviors that are adopted and how resources are distributed. And that, of course, is going to impact the level of economic growth. Right. Essentially, different regimes, different incentives, different rates of right. growth. And then why do we get democracy out of dictatorship, right? Societies, according to Olson's theory, transition from dictatorship to democracy, right? Either when a single individual uh, cannot maintain an exclusive hold on power, when the condition, the commonplace conditions for, for dictatorship are absent, or, you know, maybe through some process of competition between elites, if we assume not a unitary stationary bandit that sets up rules which can be extended to an enfranchised population. And can a democracy fully expunge all tendencies toward dictatorship? We haven't answered that fully here, but understanding Olson gives us some leverage in analyzing current cases, and we will continue to ask this question, in our, particularly in our episode upcoming on the United States and our case, whether we've done that. That's all for today. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and share this episode with your friends or on social media. If you'd like to listen to each new article of focus and insight read aloud, 
follow the link in the notes for Spectacles Out Loud. If you'd like to make a comment on the episode that you just heard, there's a link to our website, also in the notes, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter if you haven't already to receive a new way of seeing politics in your inbox five days a week. And find us on Twitter, at Spectacles Media. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks.